Well, good morning to all of you. It's good to be here this morning. And as um, Leon mentioned, um, I'm planning to share this morning on little things. So I don't know what you think of when you think of little things. Um, the Bible's full of stories of God using small and unimportant things and people to make a big difference in the history of his people. And so we're going to be kind of touching on a few of those things and, and hopefully it's going to be um, encouraging for all of us, including me. Um, and as I was thinking about this, I, I, the first thing that came to my mind of all things is fish hooks. And um, so I've had several situations where someone came to see me with a fish hook in his finger. Um, and for some reason, they were all these guys. I'm not sure why men get fish hooks on their fingers and women don't as much, but it, that's my very small sample size says it's more common with men. Um, and maybe men aren't as careful, but then maybe again men fish more, so who knows? Maybe women are just too embarrassed to come in with a fish hook in their finger. Um, so the issue with the fish hook is not the fish hook, it's the barb on the end. So when you get a fish hook in your finger, there's a barb that sticks out, and, um, and you can't just pull it out, um, at least not easily. And so... Typically, what we do with those kinds of things is we numb them up and we push them through and cut off the barb and then we pull them out. Um, and it's a lot easier to do that if you have some numbing. Um, it can be done without numbing. I imagine in the Old West, you know, people cut their legs off without numbing. So, you know, it can be done. But um, people were very encouraged when I numbed things before I started working on them. And um, so little tiny barb makes all the difference in the world. Um, you know, and I guess they put them on them so that the um, fish don't just spit them out when they um, get them in. A um, little tiny piece of metal in your eye. That's, a, that's another thing that um, it doesn't take a very big piece of something in your eye before you start to notice it. Um, and um, the solution, of course, for that is not just to put numbing drops in there and just say, well, you know, um, I can get through this. I'll just numb it up and, and keep going because um, that would be very dangerous to do. Um, um, but the, the solution is to take it out. Zechariah 4, verse 10 says, Who has despised the day of small things? And it feels like these days, people don't want small. They want big things. They want politicians who are going to fix everything. They want uh, people who talk themselves up. And I remember in um, before I moved to Virginia, we had... Um, at the hospital that I was working at, um, we had a, a marketing agency that came in and they, they talked to us about how we could get our patient approval scores up. And they said, you know, it's just really important for you to talk yourselves up. You need to tell them about what a good job you're doing for them and um, identify the things that you've done that maybe other doctors couldn't do, or other nurses couldn't do. And, you know, this is gonna really improve your surveys. Um, and it never really rang true to me. I always thought, you know, patients are going to figure out pretty quickly if I'm helping them or not. I, I mean, eventually they will, uh, you know, or they'll stop seeing me. They'll see somebody who does a better job maybe. Um, but either way, the, the tendency is to reward people who think a lot of themselves and talk a lot about themselves. Those are the people who go into politics, right? They're people who think a lot of themselves. If you don't think you can fix problems, you don't get into politics. But, um, you know, politicians are all convinced that if they just had free reign, everything would be better. 
The first story I would like to look at is in Judges um, 6 and 7. Um, this is the story of Gideon. You all are probably familiar with this story. Um, and I'm going to jump in in Judges um, chapter 6 and read a couple verses here. So Gideon is out threshing wheat in a wine press, and that's not a typical place for you to, to thresh wheat, but the reason why he did is because Israel was oppressed. There was a nation called Midian that was um, taking everything of theirs that they could take. Um, and so they had to be very secretive in the ways in which they um, um, hid their food and things like that. And so Gideon is out here in secret trying to prepare for um, um, his harvest. And in verse 14 and 15, um, God says to him, um, something that should be encouraging. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And he said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And so on one hand, we see God identifying Gideon as worth the effort to come and ask to to. Um, lead forces against Midian. And on the other hand, Gideon doesn't see this at all. He says, I'm small, my family's small, we're not wealthy, and why would anybody follow me, and why would you choose me? Um, but the key here is this simple phrase, do not I send you. And Gideon wasn't enough on his own, that's clear. Um, Gideon, the whole way along the line, is pretty fearful. Um, and, you know, maybe more than, than anybody except maybe Moses, he asks for signs. He says, you know, give me a fleece, you know, that's dry when the ground is wet, and give me a, a fleece that's wet when the ground is dry. And, you know, even on the, on the brink of battle, he needs a sign to say that, that he and his men are going to be able to win the victory. In chapter 7, Gideon has a, an army of 32,000 men. A 32,000 men army is, is probably, you know, moderate size. Now, they were facing a Midian army that was a lot bigger. Um, but, you know, God on your side, you know, maybe you can, you can beat three to one odds. And, and God says, you know, there's too many people here. He says, send home all the ones that are scared. And so um, 20,000 of them went home. And God said, um, there's still too many. Take them out to this brook and have them, um, have them drink from the brook and see uh, which ones bend over to, to drink and which ones um, take, the, take the water with their hands up to their mouths. And somehow the 300, 300 people were left. And I don't know um, what you all think about this sorting process. Um, it's pretty clear that the, the sorting process wasn't about figuring out who were the best fighters. That, you know, Gideon didn't have a bunch of men get together and they had like pitched combat with each other and they said, okay, you know, now we're gonna have you all jump across this like really long place and all the ones that don't make it, you know, you're, you're out and we're gonna get the 300 elite forces. No, this is really not about that, is it? This is not about an, you know, a, a Navy SEAL team. This is about just getting fewer men 
God says, you know, there's too many. Judges 7, 7, and the Lord said to Gideon, I will save you by the 300 men who lapped and will deliver the Midianites into your hand. And even when they were down to 300 men, Gideon wasn't supposed to equip his men with um, swords and shields and, and armor. He was going to equip them with jars and trumpets. And jars and trumpets don't seem like the best thing to go against a, a huge force when you're outnumbered. But we know that God won the victory, didn't he? And so it was a small army, a small man leading that army, who was chosen. Let's move on to 1 Samuel chapter 17. This is a, another familiar story. So we're, we're taking familiar stories. You all have heard these stories many times. So 1 Samuel 17, this is a story of David and Goliath. And we know this story. Um, we'll just read the first um, 11 verses here. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shochach, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shochach and Ezekah and Ephazadamim. And when and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side. And there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had a helmet of brass upon his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. And he had greaves of brass upon his legs and a target of brass between his shoulders. And the staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And one bearing a shield went before him. And he stood and cried unto the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are ye come out to set your battle in array? Am not I a Philistine? And ye servants to Saul, choose you a man for you and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And probably understandably so. Um, this is a big man, and he was trained. He was a battle-hardened warrior, and he was not one that um, any one of us would want to go up against. And then jumping down to verse 38, so we know that David shows up, and he, and he um, um, gives his brothers some um, cheeses, and they're, um, I'm not sure they're happy to see him. It doesn't seem like they're very happy to see him. Um, they're convinced that he's just there to see what the battle's like. <clears throat> and then Goliath shows up and says the same kind of thing. And David was upset, and he said, um, why aren't you all going out there to fight him? And his brothers, his brothers weren't, um, they, they weren't too excited by this idea, um, and so down in verse 38 through 40, um, we see that 
Saul hears about this and he says, well, you know, this David feller, you know, he's, um, he's not much to look at, but at least he's willing. Well, let's, let's try on some armor and let's see how he does. And so it says, and Saul armed David with his armor and put a helmet of bronze on his head. He also armed him with scaled armor. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. And David put them off him, and he chose five smooth stones out of the brook for himself and put them in a shepherd's vessel, which he had even in a bag. And his sling was in his hand, and he drew near the Philistine. And the point of this story is not that armor is terrible. David probably wore armor a lot of times later on. Um, But rather the contrast is with all the men of battle, including Saul, with their weapons and their training, and a shepherd with a sling and some stones. A little man with crude weapons, but with God on his side, won a massive victory. And David in this story makes it very clear that his confidence was not in his sling or in his skill, although he, was, he had those. But his confidence was in God. God would make use of him because he was willing to answer the call. And a lot of times we talk about ability versus availability. And I think we tend to swing to one direction or the other. God doesn't want ability. He wants availability. Um, He doesn't call people to fill positions in his kingdom because they have some kind of skill. And I, I think that's a mistake. God sees the abilities that we have. And he chooses us based on those. But the most important thing is that we are willing to answer his call. So God is totally aware of our abilities. He gave them to us. He made us. And he expects us to use those abilities for his service. That's, that's what the story of the talents and the servants with the talents means, isn't it? It's, it's about us being given something and then needing to make use of that thing. But God is also aware of our weaknesses, and and I'm afraid sometimes we tend to focus on one or the other of these things. We either focus on our abilities, we focus on our weaknesses, and either way is a problem. Song says, frail children of dust and feeble is frail, and thee do we trust nor find thee to fail. Your mercies, how tender, how firm to the end, our maker, defender, redeemer, and friend. And God uses humans, and I'm not going to say, you know, one of us in particular, but he uses humans in spite of our weaknesses. You know, he, he could easily use angels, but he, he doesn't. He uses you and me. And if God's going to reach Gladys, it's not going to be because Gabriel, the angel, not Gabriel, Yoder, descends on Gladys and, um, and you know, puts up signs all over the place and and starts preaching. It's going to be because you and I listen to the call. What would a job posting for God's kingdom look like? I was thinking about this, you know, ZipRecruiter or whatever, like, posting agency you could think of. What, What would that advertisement look like? In search of man or woman who is willing to be small enough to listen, patient enough to stay, brave enough to go, and focused enough to remember who he or she is serving, regardless of what situation they find themselves in. Willing to give up personal glory and accolades, short-term anguish likely in store, but long-term 
heavenly rewards waiting as well. That's what I think it would say. <laughs> um, I can. In search of man or woman who is willing to be small enough to listen, patient enough to stay, brave enough to go, and focused enough to remember who he or she is serving, regardless of what situation they find themselves in, willing to give up personal glory and accolades, short-term anguish likely in store, but long-term heavenly rewards waiting as well. And in that, I don't see any mention of, of talents, not because they aren't important, but because God can use every single one of us. He has a place for us. He designed us with that place in mind. The question is, do we answer that advertisement? Um, I think about the apostles, and, and they were men who had abilities. You know, those abilities, um, when they were young, probably were more focused on fishing and stuff like that. But, but Peter certainly could speak. Um, Paul had trained in the law and had some real skills when it came to apologetics. And God used those skills, didn't he? Jesus chose those men specifically because he knew he was building a kingdom, and these were the men that he wanted to start. And so, going back to David and Goliath, and in the same way, David had skill. His skill, though, wasn't with swords and with armor. His skill was with stones and a sling. And... David won the victory, or God won the victory through David. And then we see afterwards the, the response of Saul and David, right? Saul was jealous of David, this, this upstart shepherd boy who'd won the victory. Saul was upset. And that contrast says all the, all the important things about those two men. There are many other examples of God using small, ordinary things. We think about the widow's oil and meal keeping the prophet Elijah alive in the drought. This is in 1 Kings 17. Faith the size of a mustard seed and the still small voice that God revealed himself to Elijah in 1 Kings 19, 11, and 12. And so that's the introduction. So... What are the instruments that God uses? Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1, and we're going to read a bunch of verses here. Um, and this was the passage that first came to my mind when I was thinking about this subject. Um, we're going to read from verses 22 through 31. And this is Paul talking to the Corinthian church about who God uses or what God uses. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And this passage begins with a statement that neither Jews nor Greeks understand easily who Jesus is. And there are two kinds of people that are represented here. Um, the Greeks were the thinkers, and the Jews, maybe we could say, were the feelers or the, the people um, who were more sensing. And the Jews wanted a sign. They wanted a miracle to demonstrate the truth of the gospel message. And the Greeks wanted some sort of deep philosophy, wisdom, something that, that stretched their minds. And I believe that both of these things are found in the gospel message, but this is not the point of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to die for sinful men of whom I am chief. Paul said that, didn't he? More than that, we come to Jesus with faith and not either with wisdom or intuition. The second thing that Paul comes to here is that we preach Christ crucified. And if there's one example of God using something that did not seem worthwhile, it was the gift of his son. And people in the first century probably would not have understood this easily. Jesus was poor. He was relatively uneducated. He was not a Roman citizen. We could say he was an illegal Jesus was a convicted criminal, and he was crucified, which was the, like the worst form of death that the Romans could put on someone. And yet this was the Savior that the early church showed to the people around them. And they didn't soft-pedal that. They didn't say, well, you know, you know he had some flaws, but, um, but he really had some words of wisdom for us and, and tried to focus on that. And in the same way, People around us are changed, not because when they come to Christ, they get a neat social circle or because the Bible gives them the tools they need to get along um, with their wife or husband or beat addictions. People are changed because they meet Jesus and they walk in his company and their lives are changed. God's wisdom and power. Paul moves on from the, the picture of Jesus crucified to discussing God's wisdom and power. And he says it's foolishness, it's weakness to our vision. And yet, the dumbest thing that God ever did is smarter than the smartest thing that the smartest person you could ever think of could think of. God, even when he appears weak, is far stronger than the strongest among us. And he appears weak so that he can approach us and so that we can approach him. The point so often is simply that we don't understand the actions that God is taking in our lives or in the lives of those around us. And certainly when we think about Jesus' sacrifice, while it's amazing, it, it, it seems strange without the Spirit working in us to help us understand. But it says something, doesn't it? God values redemption and relationship more than anything else. Whatever you can think of, God values a connection with you more. And then Paul comes down here and he says that God has chosen poor, weak humans. And 
in the Corinthian church and other early churches, this was true. Um, these days, um, you know, it, it probably is a good thing to go to church now and then, even if you're, you know, if you're a politician, um, you know, it, you should have a membership in a church even if you seldom go. Um, but in Paul's day, going to church um, could mean a loss of life. Um, and Christianity was known as a religion of slaves. These were the people who joined the church. And so Paul says something that maybe he could say to the church here at Bethel. You know at Bethel none of you are famous or really wealthy, and yet God has chosen you to be his hands and feet in Gladys in Lynchburg. And I was thinking about uh, my position as a doctor, and, and maybe that seems like an important thing to you all, but um, family doctors aren't that important in the hospital. The um, surgeons and, and you know, smarter doctors look down on family doctors a little bit. And I remember an older man coming back to me when his cancer doctor told him he didn't think there were any more options. And I sat and listened to him, and I didn't have any options for him either. I'm not smart enough to know about some new cancer treatment. But I listened to him. And I talked to him, and I prayed with him, and I let him know that I would walk beside him and wherever his journey took him. And he's with the Lord now. But I think that made a difference to him in a way maybe that me saying, oh, I've got this new cancer doctor that maybe you could see wouldn't have done. And so Paul finishes up this passage explaining that at least a part of this reason is so that God's servants would glory in him. That if they boast, it would be because of their great God. This is a reference to Jeremiah 9.24. And whatever we are, we cannot be proud of it. We can only be proud of the one who gave us the talents, the skills, the abilities that we have. So why does God use foolish and weak things? And I don't know all the reasons for this. Um, you know, just probably, as Paul said, because God's smarter than me. Um, but first thing that came to me was to help us rely on him more. So Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I believe that God works hard to get us out of our comfort zones. He can do this with illness. He can do this with um, financial stresses. There's other things that he can use. Um, and I, I remember in Indiana, we, we worked in a very small hospital. We didn't have specialists there, and, and we did deliveries. And um, I remember a um, particular situation where I assisted on a C-section of a patient, um, and after the C-section, things didn't seem to go the way they normally would. This was her third C-section, and, um, and she started having increasing amounts of belly pain, and, um, and her blood pressure started to drop. And the, um, the family doc who had done the C-section called me, and he said, John, we, we need to take her back to surgery. She's not stable to transfer her to another facility. I've called the general surgeon who works with us, but he's 45 minutes away, and we're just going to have to take her back and see what we can do to stop 
whatever bleeding's going on. And so we did. And I remember standing in that operating room, looking at how pale she was, and two units of blood pumping into her and thinking, this could be a situation where there are three children that grow up without a mother. And in that moment, crying out to God, saying, God, I'm not enough, but you are. And God hears those cries. He wants us to get to that place where we really pray from our heart and say, God, meet this need in this situation. However, wherever you want to meet it, I'm willing your will be done. And that mother did make it. But whatever it is, God wants to get us out of our comfort zone so that we rely on him. Second thing is that God wants to teach us about his power and glory. Exodus 33:18 says, um, Moses said, please show me your glory. And Moses had spent a lot of time with God at this point. He'd received the Ten Commandments already. And yet he still felt that he needed to understand God's glory in a way that he hadn't to that point. God's power and glory reach into the void and create something beautiful out of nothing. That is the message of creation. And that's what he's willing to do in our lives when we let him. Um, But we have to step out of the way, don't we? Third thing is to bring glory to himself. Isaiah 42 verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. And God is the source of all good. He is the source of our talents. And if we are successful, it's because of his greatness, not because of who we are. And as we use those talents, we need to point to him, don't we? And the final thing is that he simply can't relate to us if he doesn't make us himself small enough. Um, 1 Kings 19, 11, and 12, And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, where the King James says, a still small voice. And we need that small voice. God speaks through humans because we hear them better than what we could hear his mighty voice. So what does this mean to us? The first thing is that it means that we must have humility when we come to God. 1 Peter 5 verse 6 says, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And sometimes I think we come to Jesus and we think that he's lucky because we chose to to use our talents to follow him. Um, And yet at the same time, we are just so blessed that he was willing to give what he did for us. Um, second thing is that this humility should not only be when we come to God, but it also 
should be when we work with others. John 13, 16 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. My Angelou said, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I think that that's really important. How we come to people makes all the difference. If we come to people as the messenger of God, they're, they're, going, to, they're going to be put off by that a little bit, I'm afraid. But if we come in humility, sharing what God has done for us, I think that will make a big difference. Mother Teresa said, not all of us can do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. And I remember when I was in residency, um, we took care of patients, and, and they weren't, um, they, were, they were the poorest patients. And, and during my time in residency, I only got a couple thank you cards. Um, and I, I, thank you cards aren't the most important thing. Um, but I had a I had a Russian immigrant who came in to see me, and her little four-year-old son had a high fever. Um, and I diagnosed him with strep throat. I didn't think much about it. It was probably one of my easier patients that day. Um, and a couple weeks later, I got a, a really nice card from her just thanking me from the bottom of her heart for, for taking care of her son and for healing him. And I didn't, you know... I. First, I didn't remember even what had happened. But I think that mother, Russian immigrant that she was, felt really alone. And in that moment, she needed to feel hope and comfort. And I was able to give that for her. The focus here is not on the servant or even the task. It is on the master, the one sending, the one giving the duty. Third thing is that we must realize that God works through other people in our lives. John, Luke 6.38 says, Given it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together, and running over shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. Um, and there's a number of things we could get from this passage. But I think two things stand out to me. First of all is that we should be unstinting givers, so we should give as, as we are able. And the second thing is that when God blesses us, he's going to use other humans to bless us. So it's not that he's going to, um, you know, I don't know, send gold nuggets from the sky on your house if, um, if um, you, you give generously. Um, that probably would be hard on your house anyway. But um, but it's that he's going to use other people to bless you in the ways that are, that are um, most useful to us. So just as God works through us, he works through the people around us. And he will use the people around us to bless us as we minister willingly to others' needs. It'd be easier in many ways if God chose to send an angel to set us right um, when we're struggling in a certain area, but he doesn't do that either, does he? When David 
was struggling with the sin with Bathsheba, God sent Nathan the prophet to him. And so we need to be willing to accept those things. And the final thing that I see is that we must always remember that God is enough even when we don't feel adequate for a situation. As I said before, the point is not that God discounts our ability. He wants that and sees it clearly. He gave it to us. But at the same time, he doesn't want us to use our weaknesses as an excuse not to serve him. In 1 Corinthians 1, we read Paul had written, not many wise, not many noble, not many powerful. And the point is not that God doesn't call those people. I think he calls them too. But they aren't willing to hear his call. And if we don't listen to God's call, if we don't respond to it, he's not going to twist our arm. He's going to move on to the next person. To enter the kingdom, we need to become as little children. And what does that mean to become as a little child? Well, it means trust, but it means smallness too, doesn't it? A child doesn't think that they're big enough to drive. I mean, some may think that, but, but they're willing to accept that they have limitations. And we need to see that. A good portion of the gospel message is about humility, becoming humble enough to serve the weakest. And so this world is changed by the smallest things. For some reason or other, the things that come to my mind are often um, negative things. And COVID came into my mind. You know, it's a tiny virus. It's not very big at all. And yet it's upset everything. And in the same way, God chooses small things, small people, to make a difference in his kingdom. And if this morning you're thinking that you don't have talent or skill that God can use, nothing could be further from the truth. He made you the way that you are for a reason and with a place designed in his kingdom. And so often the problem that we have isn't that we aren't big enough for God to use, but that we aren't humble enough to let his power work through us. We struggle against it. We're like a child drawing a picture whose parent comes down and sits down and attempts to guide their hand in that drawing, and they fight against it, spoiling the beauty of what might have been. I don't want this message to come across as saying we have no ability and we're worthless because God doesn't create anything that's worthless. But I do want the message to say that our blessing will come when we allow God to work in and through us the way he desires. God uses small things. He uses humans. He will use us if we are small enough, humble enough, and kingdom-focused enough to let him.